Section 19 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, Chapter 3, The Campaigns of Crecy and Neville's Cross and the Siege of Calais, Part 3. The battle had begun at Vespers, and when Philip fled from Crecy, the autumn twilight was closing in, and though the battle raged far into the autumn night, no attempt was made to pursue the shattered remnants of the army. King Edward, ignorant of the completeness of his victory, ordered fires and torches to be kindled and kept burning, and forbade the men to quit their posts. His meeting with his son may easily be imagined. He clasped him in his arms before the whole army by the light of the blazing watchfires, and said, Fair son, God give you good perseverance. Right royally have you behaved today, and proved yourself worthy of a crown. Then the young prince, for filial respect was one of the first and best lessons of chivalry, bowed reverently to the ground, and gave the honor to the king his father. The dawn of Sunday was obscured by a dense fog, and a detachment of troops was sent forward to reconnoiter and find out whether the French were rallying. They came suddenly upon a large body of soldiers marching in ignorance of the event of Crecy to join the French army from Abbeville, whom they immediately attacked and routed with great slaughter. Another troop, equally unprepared under the Archbishop of Rouen and the Grand Prior of France, were massacred without resistance. Many stragglers, too, who had passed the night in the hedges, waiting for the daylight, were caught and slain so that it is said, the carnage of the day after the battle was greater than that of the battle itself, and the total number of the slain far exceeded that of the whole of the English army. When they had counted up the dead, and ascertained by their surcoats the names and rank of the fallen, the conquerors could hardly believe the greatness of their victory. The bodies of twelve sovereign princes and thirteen hundred knights were found amongst the slain. The story is told, but on very doubtful authority, that the Prince of Wales, in honor of the most gallant and illustrious of the victims, took from the helmet of the King of Bohemia its plume of ostrich feathers, and adopted as his own the royal motto, Ich dien, reader's note, I serve, which his successors have ever since borne. No obstacle now lay between Edward and Calais, which we may assume to have been at any rate, since the sack of Caen, the chief object of the expedition. But he knew that before making it his own he would have to encounter a vigorous and probably tedious resistance. So he determined, if the first assault failed, to take the city by blockade and starve it out, though he should have to stay before it a dozen years. Accordingly, he built a town of huts round Calais, which he called Newtown the Bold, and laid it out with a market, regular streets, and shops, and all the necessary accommodation for an army. And hither were carried in vast stores of victuals and other necessities, obtained by ravaging the country round and by shipment from England. The French, however, kept a strong fleet at sea and constantly harassed the English transports, so that Edward had to write home to require ships to be fitted out to protect them in their way across the channel. To carry out these objects effectually, large sums of money were needed. 
The expenses of the army before Calais alone were enormous. The king found himself obliged to apply to the nation for a subsidy, and accordingly sent two envoys to England, who gave a full account, in a parliament assembled for the purpose, of the king's progress, of the victory of Crecy, and of the siege of Calais, not forgetting to mention the discovery at Caen of the Ordinance of Normandy for the invasion of England and the destruction and annihilation of the English nation and language, and prayed the king's faithful parliament to grant him a sum of money to carry the expedition to a glorious termination by the capture of Calais. The liberal subsidy of two-fifteenths was granted with no hesitation as to the amount, but the faithful commons, growing on each occasion of a supply more and more outspoken, took the opportunity of representing that their constitutional rights were invaded by the people being compelled to find men-at-arms, hobblers, and archers, without consent of the commons, but only by the order of the grounts or great men, and that the king should keep his promise that the defense of the sea should be at the expense of the crown. The former grievance was admitted, and an agreement made that the recent levies should not become a precedent. But with respect to the latter, they were told that the old usage would be continued, and that there was no better way of the king's defending the sea than that of his going abroad with his army for the defense of the land. While Edward was pushing on the siege of Calais, the fears which he had entertained on leaving home for the safety of his own kingdom began to be realized. Shakespeare makes Henry V say, For you shall read that my great-grandfather never went with his forces into France, but that the Scot on his unfurnished kingdom came pouring like the tide into a breach. And now that, as they believed, England was bare of fighting men, and that none but cowardly clerks and mean mechanics stood between them and a march to London. These restless and independent spirits determined not to throw away a chance of doing mischief. Just one week before the Battle of Crecy, Prince Lionel, whom Edward had appointed guardian of the realm, issued orders for the levy of an army in the north to defend England against the Scotch insurgents. For young King David Bruce, at the instigation of the French king, had marched into Cumberland at the head of 30,000 cavalry, nine-tenths of which force were mounted as usual on rough ponies, but not the less well adapted for the purposes of a successful raid into an enemy's country. They stormed the pile of little, slaughtered the garrison, and sacking the abbey of Lanarkost, advanced through the bishopric of Durham, as far as Bear Park near Neville's Cross. Meanwhile, quite unknown to the Scots, the English army of eleven or twelve thousand men was encamped six miles off in the park of Bishop's Oakland. So complete was their ignorance of each other's neighborhood that Sir William Douglas, the knight of Liddesdale, going out in the evening to forage, found himself face to face with the whole English army, and lost five hundred men fighting his way to his camp. Before he had reached it, the English host had already drawn up in order of battle on an eminence near Neville's Cross, and there they were found by King David, who lost no time in attacking them. His army was in three divisions, one of them commanded by Robert the Steward, one by the Earl of Moody, and the centre by the king himself. 
the battle, as usual, was begun on the English side by the archers, by whom great numbers of the Scottish knights and cavalry, entangled in the hedges, were unhorsed and slain before the brunt of the battle. The whole English army then advanced, with a huge crucifix carried on its front, surrounded by embroidered pennons and banners. The wing of the Scotch army under the Earl of Murray, already disordered by the archers, was now broken and routed by successive charges of the English cavalry and with their leaders slain. The steward's division offered a very feeble resistance. King David, however, with the centre, made a gallant fight of it for three hours, surrounded by a ring of his nobles, but was at length brought down by an arrow which struck him in the face. A Northumbrian knight named Copeland flung himself from his horse upon the prostrate youth, and though two of his teeth were dashed out by a blow from the king's dagger, made him his prisoner and carried him off to his castle. The Scotch no longer resisted, and Robert the steward, without an effort to rescue the king from his captors, collected the fugitives and marched them off the field. Many Scottish earls and knights were among the slain. The knight of Liddesdale was taken prisoner along with the king, and both were conducted with great respect to the Tower of London. Copeland at first refused to give up his captive, but is said to have yielded him at last, upon the promise of an adequate reward, to the express order of Queen Philippa, who, one would willingly believe, if the statement rested on better authority, was present with the army on the occasion, and emulated the example of the heroic Frenchwoman, who shortly before had taken up the sword and wielded it so successfully in her husband's cause. It is a certain and very singular fact that if the queen was not present, there would seem to have been no commander-in-chief to whose orders the other generals owed obedience upon the English side. We hear of the queen immediately afterwards as sailing to rejoin the king with the army before Calais, but Jeanne le Bel, and several of the later recensions of Hoissart's often revised work, tell us that before the fight of Neville's Cross, she retired to Newcastle. This was indeed an age of warlike heroines. While the siege of Calais was proceeding, the war in Brittany was carried on with vigor and ability by Jeanne of Pontievre, whose husband, Charles of Blois, had been taken prisoner at Rocheterien in the spring of the year by Edward's lieutenant in Brittany and lodged in the Tower of London. End of section 19